have some words of Jesus that may sound familiar to you. From Matthew 11, this would be not even midway into Jesus' ministry. He said, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he has a demon. In other words, he was on one end of the spectrum, accused of having a demon. Jesus said, the son of man came eating and drinking. And yet they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. How did he get this reputation so fast, so quickly? Well, it's how we got this gospel in the first place, Matthew's own gospel. Because it says just a chapter and a half before, as Jesus was walking, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. One disciple called, one party being celebrated because that disciple was called, and Jesus now is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's all the church sees of him. See, there may not be anyone who has more invested in what we've discovered so far, just two studies into the parables, that Jesus reserves his parables for who? The outsiders or the insiders? It's for the outsiders. The parables are comparisons that are meant to get the gospel across or at least open up the door of the gospel to those who are outside the circle of believers or followers of Jesus. I don't think there's anyone who understands that more than Matthew. See, the idea of this outsider being included in the inside is beyond the, church's, the church of the day's idea of who belongs and who doesn't. They couldn't wrap their minds around it as Jesus shows up and says, here's who belongs and here's who don't. And he has a special way of speaking to them. And they react to this. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? See, Matthew being on the inside now, in fact, writing his own gospel and including the parables that mean the most to him that would get across to us and or the, the audience that he has in mind, this requires a fundamental changing of minds. The believers of the day have to change their minds as to what constitutes inside and outside. By the way, this kind of changing of, of, of the mind has a biblical uh, term. You know what that term is? It's repentance. They need to repent. They need to turn around. It's something so beyond their experience of belonging. They truly need something serious to happen. Because Jesus points out to them, he says, when he heard this, when he heard what they said, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are what? Those who are sick. If you're well, you don't go to the doctor. You don't have any need of him. If we're sick, we go to the doctor. 
And so he said, go learn what this means. He said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. If we were all already righteous, he would have come to call no one. Because he came to call us to be righteous. He came to call us to give us righteousness. If we were already righteous, he never would have come. See, the believers of the day, they don't see themselves as sick, physically or spiritually. They follow the laws. They follow the sacrifices. But notice how they treat people, especially those deemed as outsiders. It's interesting is that depending on who is telling this story, um, it's, it's depicted or can be depicted that these believers, these good church members, wouldn't even go into the house because the house belonged to a tax collector. And if they entered the house, then of course they would be made unclean. According to who? According to the law. Which means also that maybe some of the disciples felt the same way and they were standing outside, which makes them available to the Pharisees to answer the question in the first place. But I think it's great is that Jesus hears them and he yells out the door what we just read. Tax collectors and sinners, the cream of the outsiders. In fact, tax collectors is a special brand of sinner. It's, a, it's an uber brand of sinner. It is a sinner squared or a sinner cubed. It deserves its own category. Betrayer of God and nation, they perpetually belonged on the outside. They did not belong on the inside. See, Jesus says that only sick people need a doctor. Only sinners are in need of a Messiah. They aren't perfect, these believers, but man, at least we're better than tax collectors. They're so entrenched in this state of needing nothing of this rabbi and what he has to offer that, by the way, according to Matthew, Jesus begins to use the outside voice on them. Because a little later, just a little later, he decides to use a, a, a parable which was supposed to be reserved for those on the outside. He uses it on those who believe that they're on the inside. And he said this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so are preserved. Jesus now uses parables on those who believe that they're inside, but they're actually where? They're actually outside. See, Matthew never imagined, ever imagined that he'd hear the outside voice from the inside. He never believed, he never could imagine that he ever would have been on the inside because he was Matthew the what? The tax collector. He's been his whole life in one place, placed, put in his place by the church of the day saying that he did not belong. He has no business anywhere in the inside community of God. See, we know that his name really isn't Matthew. His name is also what? It's also Levi, but I want you to know that Matthew never refers to himself as Levi. 
But I go back to Genesis 49 and the blessing of Jacob upon his children, and he says this about Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their what? Actual swords are their weapons. Weapons of violence are their swords. He says, may I never come into their council. May I not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and at their whim they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, their wrath, for it's cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob. I'll scatter them in Israel. I think Levi had this kind of streak in him. He lived in the Galilee, which means in the nation of Israel, he was second class at best, never good enough. Not good enough, nor rich enough, nor powerful enough to to be sent to the rabbinic schools. He had a desire for power as many of those who lived in the Galilee did, and he wanted it. No Jewish man, if they wanted power in the first century, had to look long for it if they wanted it. All they had to do was look outside the window, and probably somewhere in the horizon was the, uh, uh, the shadow of a Roman garrison. Or just wait, for pretty soon a centurion would be walking down the street commanding that you carry his firewood or his water. You didn't have to look far in those days to find power because you found it in absolute power in Rome. See, Daniel informed all of them correctly. Legs of iron that smash everything that that it comes in contact with. Iron teeth that devour anyone or anything in its way. They've ruled for 200 years by now and they will for 600 more. And they do it like no empire before or since. There's never been an empire like Rome. It was smart, it was shrewd, but it was ruthless. They simply came in and with the force that was needed, never more than what was needed, they just took everything that was good about the culture, the civilization, the city, the religion, everything, and they just made it theirs. It's now ours. They just gave it a Roman name and claimed it in the name of Caesar. And as long as they, no one put up too much of a struggle, this could be done rather quietly. It could be done rather humanely. But every now and then, Rome would need to make a statement. And when they did, they came down with a rod of iron. They called it Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Sure, it was peaceful, because everyone was scared to death. They only ask two things from you to not crush you. One, pay your taxes. And two, do not rebel against Caesar. That's all they asked. Do that and you pretty well could live as you always did or as you wanted. And it worked so well that by Jesus' day, the Mediterranean Sea was a Roman lake. And it worked very well. As I said, no empire like it before, and we have not seen one since. I should say it worked well except for one little place. It worked great except for a place like Palestine. Israel was a constant thorn in the side of the empire. Countries 10 times the size of Israel could be controlled by one garrison, one fort, one cohort of Roman soldiers. In little Israel that's no bigger than Vermont and New Hampshire and Rhode Island together, in in them it required nine garrisoned cities. 
with at least two cohorts in each. All to take care of these stupid, stubborn, backwater people. The ones that claim they only had one God. The Senate heard that when, when, when Titus came back. The Senate heard that and they laughed. One God. Who are these people? And oh, by the way, they're difficult because they believe everything they own belongs to that one particular God. They're not going to be thrilled about paying it to Caesar. They believe their tax money belongs to God. See, in a place like that, rebellion is always just on the horizon. So Levi, as a boy, has to decide. Where do you want your citizenship, Levi, son of Alphaeus? The real power of the world? Or this scrappy, tough, rebellious band of Abraham's kids trying to be powerful under the world's rules? Matthew decided a long time ago that it would be Rome. Matthew Levi knows this power, and he wanted to be on the inside of it. Historians tell us that publicans, which the tax collectors became known by, were always public contractors. When Rome came in, there were always people that lived uh, uh, in and wanted to cooperate with them, and they contracted themselves out to them. Public contractors. They often supplied the legions and military, managed the collection of port duties, oversaw public building projects. In addition, they served as tax collectors. By, by the later Roman Empire, they were bidding on contracts themselves from the Senate for the collection of various types of taxes. Importantly, this role as tax collectors was not emphasized until late into the history of the Republic, say around the first century B.C., so about a century before Jesus, the publican role became uh, 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 not limited to, but it started to include the tax collectors. That's why they were called publicans. They cooperated with the republic. By the way, they were a class of equites. So in Roman society, they were one class below the senate. They were one class below the senatorial class. If Matthew had lived in Rome, he'd live in the third most powerful class in all of the empire. So in choosing this, though, Levi, becoming Matthew, betrayed everything that he once knew. He sells out his family. He sells out his church. He sells out his God. All for wealth, power, and fame something that Israel couldn't offer a boy from the Galilee. And in doing so, he remained permanently entrenched outside. He didn't belong in the temple. He didn't belong in the synagogue. He didn't belong anywhere in the community of Israel. He found his community in the Republic. And it's okay because as I pointed out, is that Israel is trying to live by the world's rules also. They're looking upon their religion as, merit, as a meritocracy the way that the republic is. The republic uh, re rewards uh, hard work. It rewards power and wealth and money and fame. The church was doing the same thing, except it was a spiritual meritocracy. Becoming like God was viewed as meritorious. If you, uh, as sinners 
were locked out, it was because you did not gain enough merit in order to be on the inside. You have no merit with God, especially not even just being a regular sinner, but being a tax collector. Always on the outside. Never enough merit. Never enough. Jesus comes, though, basing his merit on something else. Basing merit, actually, on himself. He comes sowing the good seed. And with that good soil, invites everyone into his kingdom because it's based on the merit of the king himself. I got all the merit you want, says the king. Come join the kingdom. Come from outside, inside. So if a tax collector happens to seek a way into the kingdom, Jesus will rebuke any religious leader who gets in his way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you church believers of the day, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. You can't let Matthew in, Lord, he has not enough merit. See, their system was based on getting enough merit, on the ability to be better than someone else according to the standard of the letter of the law. Becoming like God was, was uh, being able to do that. Jesus shows up and says, you're never gonna get all the merit that you want in order, you know, in order to be as perfect as God. Why don't you get it from me? He came to offer his perfect merit. So the outside. So from the last two weeks, I told you that the first time the word parable is used is in Mark 4, Matthew 13, and Luke 8. And then he tells the parable of the sower, which all three gospels have. All three gospels have the parable of the sower and also the explanation of the parable of the sower. And it'll include uh, all three, it includes the parable of the mustard seed. But in between, our outsider disciple decides he's going to include one that no one else has. So we move on from the parable of the sower to one that only the outsider reports to us. And you gotta wonder, why does the outsider want us to know this one? It starts this way. He puts before him another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. What's he referring back to? He's referring back to the parable of the sower. And what was the good seed? It was the word, it was the gospel. So this has, uh, or is built on everything that was done in the parable of the sower. It's just that Matthew is the only one that records this. It's the only one that he seems, uh, uh, that he, he wants, or is as important as the other one. He wants us to have it. So it's the outsider that's, that's reporting to us this one. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared as well. So what do we note? They, they, while the wheat was growing, they couldn't tell that there were weeds in there. They were only able to tell there were weeds when what happened? 
When the grain came out, when, when they began to ripen, that was the only way that they could tell. Up until then, they couldn't tell. They only appear after the grain is supposed to bear its fruit. They call the, the, the weeds zinzonion. It's only used, that word is only used in the telling of this parable. And it says that it's a, a kind of darnel, a perverted wheat, resembling wheat, except the grains are black. This is what they look like in the, in the wild. On the left is, on, on my left, is that your left too? Yes, okay. On my left is a bearded darnel. It is one of the few darnels that still grows in other parts of the world. We've nearly eradicated it with modern agriculture in, in the United States. You never, ever see them. But they still grow wild. Look at the resemblance. And that's wheat on the right before they're ripened. Zinzanion is a darnel, a spurious wheat, a plant found in Palestine in the first century which resembles wheat both in stock and grain but is worthless. It is worthless. Even when it bears fruit, the fruit that it bears, and you can't see it very well, but the, 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 the uh, kernels are black and they're also poisonous. One other lexicon said it was a particularly undesirable weed resembling wheat and possessing a seed which is poisonous. Darnell is, is what it was known in King James days. It, you could say that it's uh, weed and you could also say it, that you could uh, translate it as a poisonous weed or a bad weed. But I, I know that they're not identical, but they do look alike, don't they? So you have actual wheat and you have fake wheat. You have genuine, authentic, and you have what? Fake, poisonous. One bearing fruit, the other bearing poison. So when this happens in the field, the farm workers are, are concerned. They come back now to the owner and the slaves of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed into your field? Where then did these what? Did these weeds come from? And he answered what? An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. Okay, that's where it came from. But the workers in the field are now concerned about the integrity of the crop because they ask, then do you want us to go and what? You want us to go and gather them? Which means they have to do what to gather them? They have to rip them up. They have to harvest them, if you will. Would you like us to do that? Oops. But he replied what? No. For in gathering the weeds you would uproot the what? You would uproot the wheat among them. Let them both what? Let them both grow together. What? The bad ones and the good ones? Let them what? Let them both grow together. Until when? Until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Wait, what? So just to pause right now, I just want, you, I want this to percolate in your head. Why would Matthew be the one to want to tell this parable? 
The end of the parable of the sower had the seed falling on good soil and producing what kind of crop? 10, 20, 100 fold. Well, guess what? This is the field. This is the good seed and the soil. What did it represent? All Jesus followers spreading the good news, inviting every nation, tribe, and tongue into the body of Christ, his church, his field. That's where we were at at the end here. And here it is, right here, good and bad, his body, his church, his field. Actual fruit and opposite empty, even poisonous fruit, commanded by the sower himself, let them grow what? Let them grow together. You have plants that are genuine wheat and some that are fake. The genuine look good because they are good. The fake just what? Just looks good. Why? Because that's all they're concerned with. To a fake member of the church or the field, looking good is good with them. They don't need to go any further. Because their standard is external only. The message never gets past that. It never produces actual what? Actual fruit. They're good. So, who do you think these two groups of people are? Have you already determined in your head who is and who isn't? Who belongs and who doesn't? Is it right versus wrong? Is it saint versus sinner? Is it good versus evil? Well, we're all sinners, so what must it be? It must be those that are acceptable sinners and those who are not acceptable sinners. The people who think they belong versus those who don't. The ones we drive out, the ones we let stay. The ones we never reach out to in the first place because we never ever could invite them in the way they are or the ones that we drive out after they become unworthy of being in. Which are they? You know, and I know that there's so many thousands of ways to be able to play this out. But let me start here. And I can only start in my place. I can only share with you what I know. I can only share it with you 35 years of serving, and, and, and believe me, love serving this church. But here's what I've observed. Every place that I've ever gone, there's always been a recurring event for me. Someone will come to my office after I've been there for just a little while, and then tell me a story of heartbreak. Heartbreak caused by somebody else. And the somebody else, nearly every time, was someone else in the church we all belong to. Nearly every one of them was that. And every story was different, but they were all kind of the same. And I will tell you this, that the ones that caused the heartbreak, nearly every one of them had all one thing in common. Really, truly, nearly everyone had one thing in common. They were right. See, they were what I call Adventist right. And as long as you are Adventist right, you belong and you're staying. 
right teaching, right doctrine, right lifestyle, right teacher. Just ask them. They prayed, they studied, they tithed, they were devout. Everyone. Yet there's a wounded lamb sitting in my office just looking for healing. See, a friend of mine tells of coming to a very large, established, what you would consider institutional church. Institutional churches in Adventism usually are churches that are attached to a hospital or a college and university, some both. But he came to this one, it happened to be a very large hospital. Huge, Mel, Mel, huge, thriving church budget. How'd you like your tithe to be well into the two and a half million dollars? Huge budget, big, huge attendance. There were young and unyoung. There were families with kids. There were retirees with grandkids. A 12 grade academy whose attendance kept on climbing every year. And my friend was really loving what he was seeing his first months there. But then there was his head elder. His what? His head elder. Born and raised, Adventist, second, third, fourth, maybe fifth generation, we don't know. 30 years as a skilled surgeon, prosperous practice, had five surgeons working with him. He'd served at least five terms as chief of staff at the hospital, and he had been head elder at this church for ages. He preached, he taught, he served, he presided, and my friend noticed just one thing about him. He seemed impatient, he seemed harsh, he seemed judgmental. He was good at everything else, and he was right, but he was mean. And over the next year or so, he began to hear stories from the community See, it's not that big of a community. The community basically was this church and this hospital and this school. The hospital employed well over 70% of the entire community. So there was all kinds of people who had contact with, this, with the church through the hospital. And he began to learn more and more this notoriety of meanness of this surgeon in the OR. His staff detested him. His colleagues detested him. So how did he and how is he still this church's what? Head elder. It's because he was right. It's because he was devout. And he looked good. Right down to the very letter. See, in that letter, right down to that very letter, that, that right in being uh, Adventist, that right Adventism, it looks really good. In fact, the, it, the fruit almost looks like fruit. But you scratch the surface. It didn't get to his heart. He's a guy with the gun that gets away with it in church. Why? Because he's right. I get that, that um, I like that, that 
simile, I, I, I get that. It's not quite a parable, but the person with the gun, the devout right person with the gun that can cause heartbreak. I get that from Matthew Lucio. He's a pastor and writer. He, he's the director of a very innovative digital church. He hosts the Adventist History Podcast, and he writes about the folks with guns in our church who get away with it. In an article that he wrote last year, it says, the guy with the gun often gets away with it in Adventist churches. There was this uh, lady, elderly lady in the congregation I was baptized into. She didn't say much. The rumor was that she had a suitcase packed, ready to run for the hills at the first sign of a Sunday law. People respected that. If it occurred to anyone to wonder how far an 85-year-old woman was going to get with a suitcase full of big francs, they didn't ask. But one Sabbath, that saintly soul met my father in the church parking lot after church. She said, you know, sizing up my dad, if you don't eat more salads, you're going to tax your wings and you won't be able to meet Jesus in the air when he comes. My dad was a big man in more than one way. And he was big about this as he laughed it off. But that scene stuck with me. I don't remember my first sermons. I don't remember the Bible studies I took on the road to Adventism. I don't remember most of the people in that church, but I remember that conversation. I remember how casually cruel she was to my dad that Sabbath, how pious that cruelty seemed. And as often is the case in Adventist churches, she's the girl who gets away with the gun. See, now no doubt these saintly assassins can be found in all denominations. It's not uniquely an Adventist problem. But then again, most other churches don't claim to have the final gospel. They don't claim to be the remnant church. They don't talk so much about victory over sin and the need to represent the character of Christ in the final generation. We do. And having an assassination story as a rite of passage is a rite of passage for every local pastor. We all have these stories. Just ask any of my colleagues, let alone an editor or a conference leader. We expect to be attacked by our own people. George Knight's stump speech about knowing Adventists who are meaner than the devil never failed to draw a nervous chuckle from the congregation. We know and we've always known what he's talking about. A little later in the article, he says, Adventism is more important to Adventists than other Adventists. You can get away with a lot in Adventism if you are publicly loyal to the truth. And I wish you could see this article. He put a little copyright over the truth. As if we have it copyrighted. You can be non-Trinitarian, believe the earth is flat, insist that people need to keep the feast days, and tell people they're too fat to get into heaven and remain a member in good standing. Then he says, the moaning myrtles go on about Adventism's past judgmentalism. Adventist churches today are still, even though they do that, Adventist churches today are still inclined, ill-inclined to discipline members, but especially for not being piously cruel. And why would they be so inclined? It's not like cruelty to others is explicitly stated among the 15 reasons for discipline given in our church manual. 
The church manual gives 15 reasons you can discipline a church. Being mean is not among any of them. Buying a lottery ticket is. Sticks and stones, I guess. Words can never hurt us. So we think about who we deem as not worthy to be on the inside, or if the inside, uh, or if they are on the inside and proving unworthy the ones that we kick out. We always said that we have to separate ourselves from these. They're a danger to our own spiritual status. If you hang around them too long, if you participate in what they are bringing you, then it will affect your own spiritual growth, and worse, it could ruin the reputation of the church. We don't want anybody unworthy walking around with a Grace in the Desert t-shirt on. But note in this parable, Jesus says that's not the case. The tares or the weeds don't seem to be enough to threaten the life of the wheat. The soil is good enough for them both, apparently. Let them grow together. See, it's his field. It's his church. It's his soil. Apparently, it's good enough for everybody. Worthy and unworthy. And not for nothing, like I said, I can only speak for myself. And be one of those moments where if I could you know, look you all in the eye, I would. I would look you in the eye and I would say this, speak for myself, that every sin that I've ever been truly convicted of, you know, the ones that you want me to be truly convicted of, the ones that you want me to repent of and change my mind and actively seek to eradicate, that all happened after joining the body. You can't do it outside the body. I'm living proof. I tried to purge all my sins before I was baptized. I really did. I didn't want to dirty your place up. Took me five minutes to realize I had failed. But it can only happen in the good soil. Repentance, all of the things that we seek to do to become better, to become spiritually mature, it only happens in the good soil. How do we expect people from the outside to do it without any help, without any atonement, without any forgiveness, without a community to confess to and to be safe within and to be accepted for who they are? It can only happen in the soil a community that proved that they loved this sinner, gave him a place to grow, time to grow, fulfilling the commandments rather than condemning me with the letter of the law. Did you ever think that of the many reasons we won't baptize someone in the first place or kick them out after are the very things that made them immediately attracted to Jesus in the first place. The very things that we seek to discipline people with, to keep people out of, 
either to kick them out or not let them in because they're this. They're the very things that attracted Jesus to them. They're the very things that even got him to adopt a special way of talking to them, a special way of teaching them, a special way of being with them. He'll have a parable about two sons that a father uh, goes and gives a job and, and, and there's a bunch of things. I think we will do that parable. But uh, when, they, when Jesus asked at the end, he said, which son did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus says, I truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. The church would lock the tax collector and the prostitute out. Why? Because they are tax collectors and prostitutes. If there are two people that don't belong in the church, it's them. But it's the very thing that attracted them to Jesus. So who's on the inside? Who belongs? What is the fruit on the wheat? What is it that is genuine? Ed gave it to us in our, script, in our scripture reading. I give you a new commandment that you what? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is how they know you. Not by our rightness, nor our devotion to the rightness, Remember that we are, we're the ones that claim we have the final gospel. We claim to be the remnant church. We talk so much about victory over sin, the need to represent the character of Christ in the final generation, and none of these is the genuine fruit that the wheat has. Only love for one another. So would we be willing to make love the final fruit of all disciples? Are we? No. Oh, it'll take a lot, won't it? But it must be done. The parable says we grow together. Just to leave you with this, I think about the wheat and this growing of together. The main reason the farmer says not to tear out the weed is what would happen is the, re, the root would be up, the, the wheat would be uprooted too. See, uh, that's one thing about this Darnell is that the, the roots go after the nutrients also. But the amazing thing again is that it, they're, they're, they're not a danger. You see, Jesus says, leave them in the field to grow together. Again, I, to, to me, what, what he's saying is that the, the, the soil is good enough for both of them. Don't tear them out. But I, I don't know, you can look upon it as it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's evil against good. It's these evil roots wrapping in. But I look at it another way. If Jesus truly, truly, if they were a threat to us, if they were a threat to our spirituality, if they were a threat to, to our atonement, if they were a threat to our mission, then he'd find a way to disentangle the roots. But there might be another reason that the roots are so entangled is that the wheat has fallen in love with the weeds. And if you try to kick out one of the weeds, the wheat's gonna go with them. How'd you like to see that? Of all the people in all my years that we disciplined, I never had one church member ever stand up. And I wish it would have happened. You kick her out, and I'm going with her. 
See, it's a parable that needs profound, a profound change of a point of view for those of us who are wheat, for those of us who are weeds. Complete change of our fabric. Complete change of the fabric. New wineskins, not old. Shrunken cloth. I mean, I mean, truly a fundamental change, a change down to the DNA of what we are and what, what exists, according to this parable. And we only have this parable because of this beautiful outside, outsider who made it inside because Jesus brought him in. The disciple that Jesus brought in through the outdoor. See, the way that Matthew describes himself is this. This is his list of the disciples. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and what? And Matthew. But notice, he includes the title, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. By the way, it's the only other one that has a title. The one who betrayed him and the tax collector. Matthew says, I'll keep that. But as, as you go down a little further, as he, as it says that he passed by, when Mark says this, when Mark points it out, he says, Levi, the son of what? The son of Alphaeus. Hold on a second. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Who? the son of Alphaeus. Mark says that Levi also is the son of Alphaeus. He's James's brother. But he doesn't call himself Levi. Matthew, the tax collector, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew's a constant reminder that we didn't get along. It's a constant reminder that I don't belong here. It's a constant reminder saying that, you know what? Jesus didn't call me because I was Levi. He called me because I was Matthew, the tax collector. He called me in because I didn't belong. But it's his kingdom, and he proves it by calling those in who are not worthy. So for anybody who reads this, anybody who hears this parable, I'm here not because I was born Levi, the son of Alphaeus. I'm here because I betrayed everybody and everyone and I received merit only from the king. I don't know, Mark may want his Jewish audience to find Matthew a bit more palatable to be found on the inside of the kingdom of heaven, but Matthew wants us to know that Jesus didn't call him from the outside because he was Levi. Matthew, the tax collector, right along with Judas, the one who betrayed him. They all belonged. And just to point out, and I don't know if we will do these parables, other parables, but just to point out that after this one becomes the mustard seed, and to me, the parable of the mustard seed now only makes sense. Matthew clarifies, okay, that that plant grows big enough for every bird in the earth to make a nest in it. If Matthew didn't tell us this, somebody could walk away saying, well, it's big enough for most. But then after the mustard seed, he also tells, is the only one that tells the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price. 
and the fisherman's dragnet. He's the only one that tells all three of them. He tells all three of them in a row. And just to let you know that all three of them contained uh, an object or something that is still within the circle. It's on the inside. The fish is in the net. It's not going to get sorted until the harvest. It's not going to get sorted until Jesus comes back and sorts it all completely out. Uh, Up until then, the fish is in the net, no matter what kind of fish he is. The treasure's hidden. It's in the soil. <laughs> Just, it's beautiful. It's hidden. I've been hidden in the soil. I've been told that I, would, was, that I didn't belong, but the treasure hunter came and dug me up, and he found treasure in me. The pearl of great price only has great price because the man who found it put a price on it. He found it and sold everything that he had so that he could have it. Matthew's the only one that tells those stories because he's the only one that perpetually lived his whole life on the outside and now he's on the inside and he wants us to know that if we're on the outside, we can belong on the inside too. All we have to do is leave it up to him. Matthew doesn't want us to forget that he was lost and Jesus found him. So are we a tree that makes room for everyone? Does, if we did next week, the parable of the mustard seed, would it make that kind of sense to us? Are we prepared to become shrunk cloth? Are we, are we ready for him to shrink us, to change us? Are we ready to be new wineskins? Are we finally ready to let everybody grow together? Because I have to tell you, no, it doesn't, it isn't perfect. It's, uh, people are still going to walk away. But this is their only shot. You know how I know? Because it's our only shot. It's our only shot. To be in the soil, to be in the field, to be in his body, in his church. I thank God for Matthew. The only disciple to come in through the outdoor. Thank you all.